If you have a Bible with you today, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. We'll actually be starting reading in chapter 4, verse 25, but we'll start working through the Sermon on the Mount today, and so we'll begin by reading the first 10 verses of chapter 5 here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and in that Bible you can find Matthew chapter 5 on page 759. Last week we had an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and today we begin truly thinking and speaking about the sermon as Jesus Christ has given it. And we begin with an important section, which are the Beatitudes. These are eight blessings, and they are truly important in the scheme of the sermon, for they set the tone for the rest of it in incredibly important ways. And I think that these Beatitudes are meant to be the foundation of the rest of the sermon. I don't think that they're necessarily the pinnacle of the sermon that likely comes in the model prayer of Matthew chapter 6, but I certainly think that they are foundational. They are words we we're going to need to return to time and time again because Jesus has, again, some incredibly difficult things to say to us. He has lofty goals for his people. And so if, before he begins the difficulty, before he begins laying down for us what our goals and, and what we should strive for in this world, he lays down for us blessings, foundation to know that God is with us and cares about us and seeks our good. Yet this good news is often misunderstood. What do these Beatitudes even do? Are they just declarations? Are they universal in scope so that anyone who falls into these categories are indeed blessed by God? In what ways are they blessings? Are these ways that we secure the blessing of God? Further, we have questions, I think, about even how to catalog them. I, I don't know how to catalog them. I, I, you would think that there would be some sort of order that Jesus gave them in that you could discern a, a pinnacle one, or, or even numbering them should be easy, but it turns out that it's not. You could go down through verses 11 and 12 and consider that sort of a ninth beatitude, but they sound different, that one does, than the rest of them. And I'm not sure if we should include them. Today we're only going to talk about the first eight. We'll save 11 and 12 for, for next week. But there's an even more fundamental question than how we catalog them or, or what their function is, and that is, what in the world do we even consider to be joy and blessing and happiness in this world? Although Americans' wealth and their technology, our opportunity for success has grown over the past five decades, from the 1970s until now, all indications of pollsters, of taking the temperature of America has found out that we are absolutely no happier, no more fulfilled than we were in the 1970s. Amidst all of our prosperity, there's a lingering sense of desperation and overwhelming melancholy in our country. How important is it then to hear Jesus speak on precisely those issues, issues of of flourishing in the world, issues of blessing and joy and happiness. And these are indeed the words of the Beatitudes. Let us turn to them. We'll begin reading, like I said, up in verse 25, and we'll read down through 510. The word of our Lord from the book of Matthew. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of our God. As we consider those very words this morning, I want first to bring forward to your attention the context of the Beatitudes. What is the context of the Beatitudes? And the context really comes down to Jesus, and I want to mention a handful of things about what we see in Jesus through the context, not just what we've been introduced to, but where we see the Lord going after his sermon here. First, it's important to realize that as verse 25 points out, the great crowds were following him, that Jesus has grown these crowds through his miracles. And again, the miracles demonstrate Jesus' compassion and care for the people who are coming to him. They're not just some sort of sideshow. They're not just tricks. They're not just miraculous loss leaders to get people to come and follow him so that he can pull them into some sort of cult. But they're rather there to demonstrate his real and powerful love and compassion over people. Jesus' miracles give validity, validate his instruction. My wife loves it when I speak words that have no bearing in the English language, and she is, blessed are those who are here to hear me make up words. So for those who are gathered, who have, who have heard not only the words of Jesus, but have experienced the, the healing and the compassion of Jesus, when they have him open his mouth and speak to him, they see him not first and foremost as someone who carries authority, although we will get to that. Certainly, they hear him that way. But they see somebody who cares about them, who loves them, and has compassion over them. But that is not all. There is, secondly, this sort of prophetic authority that Jesus has. Perhaps they would first think of the compassion and the love that he has shown to them. But the miracles themselves also whisper of his authority. Those who did miracles in the Old Testament were almost always, and as far as I can think of, were always considered prophets. They were people who spoke the word of God as well as performed miracles for God. And so to be somebody who is capable of doing miracles for God, of standing in the presence of God and performing his works for him, also means that he is somebody who opens his mouth and speaks words which are poignant and perfect. Matthew has been pointing in this general direction. We know that Jesus is sort of a stand-in for Israel, but along those same lines, it's clear that Jesus is also meant to be the prophet like Moses who was raised up. As much as Joshua, in the book of Joshua, is held up as that prophet, Jesus is the better prophet who was to come. So many similarities between Moses' life and Jesus' life has happened already in the book of Matthew. Each is saved from ruthless child-murdering kings. Both are called out of Egypt. Both passed through waters of judgment. Both fasted 
and are tempted, both go up on a mountain. And it's important because in verse 1, Matthew is drawing attention to that, saying that he goes up on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain, which makes it sound like he like scaled some sort of huge thing to sit on the pinnacle and yell down at the people, but really he just went up a little bit. Matthew's wording here is particular to reminisce, to bring to mind the movement of, of Moses up the mountain of the Lord to receive the revelation from God, but Jesus is better than even that because Moses goes up to receive revelation from God and then to give that to the people. Jesus himself has the revelation from God. He is not just a prophet like Moses. He is the prophet, the person who speaks the word of God. And therefore, everything he speaks is with authority. And it's important that before we even begin coming into this, we realize that Jesus speaks with both of these things, love and authority. People who just speak with authority and do not speak with love might demand things out of you, but you have right to question whether they are good for you. Many people in authority give you rules and tell you to do things and put imperatives in front of you because it's good for them, not because it's good for you. Jesus has love for you. The people who were there hearing these words must have understood that one who heals us, one who loves us, must speak these words for our good. But we also know that there are plenty of times when people want to speak words that they want to be true for you, they want to be good for you, but they have no authority to make those things true. Jesus not only speaks good words, but he speaks true words to these people. This is sort of highlighted by having Matthew say that Jesus opens his mouth. For those of you who thought that Jesus was going to give the sermon by signing or charades or maybe some Pictionary, maybe opening up a PowerPoint or something like that, it seems like it's a strange thing to actually pen. Why, why would we expect a sermon to be given in any other way but then by Jesus opening his mouth? But this is just a figure of speech that's used to indicate the solemnity and the importance of what Jesus is about to say. If he is a prophet of God, if he does do these miraculous works, then you ought to hang on every word that comes out of his mouth. It's important to also understand that Jesus lives this out. As we go through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, these are not words for you that do not apply to him, but he, in fact, lives all of these out in the most perfect of ways. And lastly, I want to point out to you that Jesus doesn't seem to be making these up whole cloth. As we go through, we're going to have mentioned a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures, but especially the Beatitudes are sort of a collection and distillation of what the Old Testament is implying already. We know that Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus can indeed confront the way that people understand that Word, but because He is the Word of God, and because He stands in the line of prophets, we should understand that Jesus is really just saying the very things that the Old Testament has already said, because He said them in the Old Testament. So, for instance, the connection in the first two Beatitudes from Isaiah to those. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Listen to what Isaiah 66, 2 says. The Lord says there, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who will the Lord consider? Who will the Lord see? Who will the Lord take notice of? It is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. One might say the one who is poor in spirit. 
Isaiah 61, just a bit earlier in the book of Isaiah. Famous passage that Jesus once read in his tabernacle. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. As you read through the Beatitudes, so many Old Testament passages should ring in your ear. The context of the Beatitudes then is that Jesus stands in line of the prophets, even as he is the greatest of the prophets, speaking to people with both authority and love. Which brings us to the second point this morning, which is the concept of the Beatitudes. The concept of the Beatitudes. What are we even supposed to do with these things? How are we supposed to understand them? They're very formulaic in the way that they're presented for us, but it's not at all clear how we're supposed to take them, and people have taken them in many different ways. How are we to read the word blessed here? Blessing usually implies something that God rains down upon people. If you are blessed, then God's favor rests with you, God's hand rests upon you, good things will come to you. But this seems like a weird way to read these, given that many of the positions that these people are in are not apparent blessings. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. If they're blessed, why are they being persecuted? That's where the four comes in. And many people who love that word blessed read the four as the explanation for it. People who are persecuted or poor in spirit or who mourn are blessed because the Lord will undo that. He will will make it worth your time and make it worth your while eventually. I would say that if you read the Beatitudes that way, and certainly much of that is true. But it can also mean that the world that we live in is very bereft of hope while we are here. It implies that all of our happiness, our joy, the fulfillment of our desires, of the peace that we seek, is something that can only come to us in the next life. We are going to slog through the muck and the mire of this world for 70 years, or if, as Moses says, the Lord gives us strength, 80, always waiting for the good life that is to come. I'm not sure that that's how it's best read or translated. The Greek word that's used here as blessed overlaps almost directly onto a Hebrew word which is translated the exact same way. A Hebrew word that's used often in the Psalms and in Proverbs and even in the book of Isaiah. It is a word that has God's blessing perhaps in the background. We don't want to think that God's blessing isn't here. It is. But it's not so much how God feels about the person. 
nor about how God has endowed things over them. The word blessing connotes what God has done, but it doesn't seem to be the purpose of this word. The purpose of this word is something slightly different. Listen to Psalm 1, 1 through 3, where we begin not only the entirety of the Psalter, and this is a summation of what the Psalms are supposed to mean, but it begins with this beatitude. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Place sort of takes center stage in that opening psalm. Blessed is a man who does not walk and stand and sit, but we would say that, that walking with sinners, standing with scoffers, all of the, the language that is used there would put them in literally a bad place. And we use that kind of thing metaphorically. We, we look at somebody who say, how are you doing? Are you in a good place? Not like, is this building a pretty decent place to be? But, but are you in a good place emotionally? Are you in a good place in, in, your, in your spiritual life? Are you in a good place? Even the, the ending of this is in a good place he is like a, a tree planted by streams of water. And notice there is delight and joy in what he does. Jesus is not implying that God will simply be kind to these people and only then in the future, but rather that they are already in something that could be called a good place. They're in a state of happiness, contentment, peace, security, and joy. It's hard to know what word we should use to translate this. Almost every person who writes a commentary on these things notes that blessed is probably not a great word to use. But we've used blessed for some 400 years and we're not going to stop now. R.T. France says this about the Greek word that's used here. He says that it does not state that a person feels happy, but that rather they are in a happy situation, one which other people ought also to wish to share. To come at this another way, we have a lot of problems with prosperity gospel, not just here in our country, but worldwide. We personally have problems with the prosperity gospel. People who preach the prosperity gospel at, at times minimize and at other times completely and utterly misconstrue what the cross of Jesus Christ was there for and his death, his burial, and resurrection and how important those things are. We need to, though, understand that even while there's a spectrum of people, some who just who want to dive headfirst into pools of heresy and others who seem to misunderstandingly dip their toes in it. Every single person who pushes the prosperity gospel does do one thing very clearly. They misunderstand what God wants when it comes to our happiness and our joy and our good. But we need to be very clear about where we are different from them and what we are actually different about. If we were to put a face on the prosperity movement, it would be hard to find a better one than Joel Osteen, whose smiling demeanor is sort of the face of prosperity. And it would be harder even still to find a better book to summarize it than the book that put him on the map is 2004, Your Best Life Now. The back blurb of that book says this. Do you often dream of living a more rewarding life? 
Do you aspire to a better job, a stronger marriage, a happier home? Do you wish for more gratifying relationships with your family and friends? Perhaps you simply want to accomplish more and leave a lasting legacy for future generations. How do you break out and experience the full potential that God has intended you to have? The book, at least the blurb, explicitly then says there are seven steps to doing this in. They are to enlarge your vision, develop a healthy self-image, discover the power of your thoughts and words, let go of the past, find strength through adversity, live to give, and choose to be happy. So, hearing that, I want to be really specific about where we would disagree with him and where we agree with him. And I want to start with where we are not ever to disagree with him. His problem is not that he thinks that God wants us to be happy or that God wants us to flourish. That somehow we get the idea if we are to reject what he says that Jesus doesn't want us to live our best life now. I remember when I was in seminary almost directly after he had published this book. Like, people would talk about living your best life now like it was a ridiculous idea that doing that is a quick way to go to hell. The way some speak, you would surmise that God wants us to live our most okayish life now and leave the better one for later. But do we honestly want to believe that God is withholding us from the good life? Are we truly to think that God, who has been so generous and gracious to us, who has given us his son and therefore everything with him and his spirit and therefore confirmed every promise to us, will somehow hold back on us now? That he'll be stingy with us with the good life? We should never, ever think that. While God will allow suffering, he will allow hardship and pain Christians will indeed struggle and worry. They will flounder at times in sadness and melancholy. God doesn't do that only simply to reward us in the next. God gives us those things because at times, those things are good for us. The problem is not that God wants our flourishing and our happiness. It's that what Osteen offers, the very things that he holds out as desires for us, are no different from the things that any other motivational speaker would ever provide for you in the world. They're no different. Rewards in life, better jobs, stronger relationships, happier homes, accomplishments, legacy. What motivational speaker doesn't get up and promise those very things? All Osteen does is dash in a bit of God as a manager, as a trainer, and as a cheerleader for you. Jesus offers us flourishing, happiness, contentedness, peace, and shalom. Not the way that the world does, but in a radically, radically different way. We're not to put off a state of happiness, of flourishing, of contentment until we get to heaven. Friend, Jesus holds that out to you now. You are to now have eternal life. It's not just something that comes to you later. It is the downtrodden, the powerless, the merciful 
who have this now. But the important bit is how they have it. They have it now because God will bless them in the future. And so rich and wonderful is the blessing of God that it reverberates throughout history's future back to us. You've seen videos of parents who have a big surprise for their kids, videotaping them at the dinner table or in the car. And they tell them, listen, in three months, we're going to Disney World. And those children love Disney, watch the mouse since they were young. They, they love the Marvel movies. They love Star Wars. They are pumped up and excited and they start screaming and yelling and they are just overjoyed. And, and the, in, in your head, you're like, okay, three months is a long time and we still have to live in Decatur, Illinois for those three months. So you need to settle down because it's not quite that happy yet, right? But the deal is, for those children, that promise is so real and so sure in their childlike faith and the joy so real that they can't help but feel it now. Yeah. Life is indeed a slog here. It's difficult at times. And you shouldn't ever think that what Jesus is promising is an Osteen-like smile on your face regardless of the situation that you might find yourself in. But what he is saying is this. God's blessings over people who hang on those blessings are real and true. And that people who find themselves in these particular situations, being meek, being those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, these people are in a blessed state now. They are in a good place now. They flourish now because they can trust in the word of the Lord and what God will give to them. The concept here, I think, is pretty straightforward. Those who flourish best in the world are those who seem like they should be most discontented with it, and even those who wait for a better world to come. Those who have very little, those who don't have the things that the world considers blessings, are indeed those who are most happy in the world now, those who would flourish best because they entrust themselves to God that he will bring them something better. Let's then talk briefly about each of the contents of the Beatitudes. So third, let us talk about the contents of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Shouldn't hear poor in spirit to be equivalent with poor, but we probably make too big of a difference between Matthew and Luke. Luke shortens this particular Beatitude to blessed are the poor. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who in that day and age would have been poor in spirit would have been people who likely were poor. There was a huge correlation in their minds between the blessings of the world and the blessings of God. No matter how much the book of Job would have been quoted and understood, nevertheless, people who were crushed by the world, people who, who had blindness or lameness, these people were often viewed, as we read even in John 9, as being subject to their own sin and the defilement that comes from their own sin. So to be somebody who is rich in the world is somebody who is blessed by God. To be poor in spirit and to be poor are not terribly terribly different. In Isaiah's words, these are the contrite in spirit. The NAB translation is fairly helpful here. Blessed are those who know their need of God. They're not terribly confident in their abilities or their opinions. They have no sense of self-pride and accomplishment. These are not people who feel like they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. These are not people who feel like they can gain things on their own accomplishments. 
There are people who know that they need to rely upon God in all things. And what's more, because they're broken in spirit, it also implies that they have failed God and they know that to lean on God is to lean on nothing more than his blessing, his mercy, and his grace. To these are given the kingdom of God. They are the natural inheritors of it because they rest on God, which is all God requires. As we so often sing, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Those who are poor in spirit, who know that God owes them nothing and that they have nothing to offer him, those who are poor in spirit, who are broken and beaten, are in a good place. They will flourish, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This isn't so much, although it can include people who have their own personal loss, but more like people whose situation is just wretched. Again, listen to Isaiah 61. Those who mourn in Zion have ashes on their heads. They, they mourn. They have a faint spirit. Life has been incredibly hard on them. They look around and they mourn who they are. They mourn the position that they find themselves in. But again, what is replaced? Ashes are replaced with gladness. Praise for a faint spirit. This is a picture of those who find themselves longing for more, hoping for more than what this world is going to give them, who look for better things, and who uphold the hope that God's promise will give them that. Blessed are those who mourn. They are in a good place, and they will flourish, for they will be comforted. God will comfort them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Unfortunately, we are trained and framed in our minds by the events that have happened in our lives before this. And every time I hear this particular beatitude, I cannot help but think of Charles Barkley. When I was a younger man, my friend had a Charles Barkley shirt, and it was awesome because it was hypercolor. And, uh, and it showed Barkley ripping down a rebound, and he had the ball and a mean look in his face. And on the front of the shirt, which was, again, hypercolor, which is actually the best part of the shirt, was, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And on the back of his shirt, it said, but they won't get the ball. Which is actually correct, theologian Charles. I'm pretty sure Charles did not make up the shirt himself. You need to understand, meek doesn't mean mousy. Meek is referring to someone who refuses to use earthly power to gain favor and improve circumstances, particularly for themselves. Now that might mean, and in most cases does mean, that they don't have any worldly power. But it could also mean somebody who just walks meekly, like the Lord Jesus Christ walks meekly. He is meek in that he doesn't uphold his power and his might. And even his Godhead, according to Philippians 2, he doesn't hang on to it as though it's a thing to be grasped, as though it's something to bring attention to himself by but it's something to be used for others. These are the types of people who refuse the power that they can use. They refuse to take what is theirs. They refuse this great word of carpe diem. They don't want to take each day captive. They don't want to take life by the horns. They don't want to make sure that they get every ounce of everything that is coming to them. They are content to wait for the goodness of God. Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out 
evil desires. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. These people aren't concerned with having their pound of flesh, of making sure that others get their comeuppance and whatever is coming to them. They are not overly concerned with making sure that this world is righted here and now. Rather, they will wait for God. It looks like eventually we do get the ball. Those who are meek in such ways are in a good state. They flourish, for they get everything. The fullness of the earth is theirs. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew's understanding of righteousness, again, is not Paul's. He's not talking about receiving the righteousness of God by imputed faith. He's not talking even about God setting the world to rights and seeing his justice reign over all things. But when Matthew talks about righteousness, it is typically a personal righteousness. It is primarily those who long for their own righteousness. Those who long to be people like Jesus explains they should be in Matthew 5.20, whose righteousness is better than the scribes and the Pharisees. It seems weird to even say hunger and thirst for us. We have a, a diminished view of what hungering and thirsting would be like. We are hungry and thirsty at times knowing that a water fountain is in the back and we are no more than five minutes from getting food into our mouths almost anywhere we turn. But these are people who know what it is to be hungry and know what it is to thirst. And their definition of those things is widely different than ours. Jesus is saying, blessed are the people who long for righteousness. Like people who need a drink of water to live and people who need food to sustain their life. It is everything to you to be righteous in the world. And notice the highlight here is not the possession of the thing, but the longing for it, the feeling that you will die without it. Do you honestly say that you feel that way about righteousness? That you look at the righteousness that you could have in life and long for it and plead with God for it as though you were pleading for food itself. And we often, I think, consider that it is with the best outward righteousness that this blessing belongs. Those people who look like they're righteous, who walk as though they are righteous, who may have had a good upbringing, filled with all of the sort of cultural imperatives that go along with that good upbringing, good morals, and a general righteousness about how they walk through life. But here, that is contrasted with people who struggle for their righteousness, who weep and mourn over their sin, and long for the day that that sin will find them no more. They will be satisfied. They'll be satiated. It's the same word that is used for the fattening of animals for the slaughter. Now, that metaphor only works if you consider that this animal is not going to be slaughtered, right? So put that out of your mind. But, but you will be fed. You will have an overabundance of righteousness. It is not the self-satisfied. It's not the people who look around and compare themselves to others who are in a good state, who say, I'm, I'm righteous because I'm better than them and I'm better than them, but it's the person who longs and hungers for a better righteousness. Jesus says, they are in a good state. They flourish because one day they will be overly satisfied with the righteousness that they have. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We want to be careful how we read this. Jesus gives further instructions in chapter 6 that sounds an awful lot like this, which we can then start to think is sort of a tit-for-tat thing. After saying that we are to forgive those, we're asking God to forgive our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us, Jesus says in verse 14 and 15 in chapter 6, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you yours. What Jesus is saying is pretty straightforward. Not to read it, that if you do this, then God will be sure to do that. But what he's saying is, you are to be consistent people. People who have experienced mercy. Give mercy. People who truly know what it is to be forgiven are forgiving people. You cannot gain the forgiveness and gain the mercy of God, truly understanding what that is without being somebody who then turns and gives it away. The people of the kingdom are those who are consistent, who are complete both inside and outside. This mercy is meant to be wide and deep. R.T. France said this, Mercy is linked closely with forgiveness, but is broader here than just the forgiveness of specific offenses. It is a generous attitude, which is willing to see things from the other's point of view and is not quick to take offense or to gloat over others' shortcomings. This is the general rule of love. Give people the benefit of the doubt. When you hear their words, read them and interpret them in the greatest possible light. Give them every benefit you possibly can. That is what mercy does. Don't make them out to be more evil than they are. Let them prove it. Those who show mercy in this way are in a good place. They will flourish, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24 says this, Who will ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who are the pure in heart? They are those who do not love what is false. They don't swear deceitfully. Summed up, I think, in the idea that they seek the Lord. The pure in heart are those who long for the Lord, not those who are faultless, not those who are blameless, but who honestly long for the Lord. They seek him. They seek to know him. They seek to understand his ways. They seek to live under his own commands. Friends, what do you want out of God? Do you want to get the good things of the world? In Osteen's word, do you want a, a better job, a lasting legacy, a happier home? The pure of heart do not seek God for his gifts. They seek God for himself. They know that the greatest gift, the most perfect, the most beautiful, the most glorious thing is not something else that God can give you outside of himself, but it is God himself. These are the people who ask, seek, and knock. Those who truly want to see the glory of God will one day see it. Those who are pure in heart are in a good place. They will flourish, for they will get what they desire. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These are peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Not people who want to keep the din of, of frustration and anger to a minimum, 
who look at two people who are having trouble and just say, you know what, the best thing to do is probably just to go to your separate corners and ignore each other for a couple of years, and and I'm sure that time will make this well. Peacemakers are people who seek to reunify people, who seek to overcome the difficulties that they are in. It is a tough work. It is difficult to arbitrate hard cases, to make such judgment calls, to seek the good for everyone in any situation. And even as peacemakers, we know that there are limits. Jesus himself came to bring peace. Paul says that he broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and thereby made peace. But Jesus himself is quick to admit that even as I make peace, I also have brought to the earth a sword and families will be torn apart and nations will be torn apart because of what I'm saying. There is a limit to what we do, but this is the end result of what God ultimately is going to do. He makes peace. War will cease. Strife, enmity, and tears will be completely and utterly done away with and washed away, and peace will reign. Therefore, those who struggle, who work to bring peace to others, act as God himself and are accorded the title of sons of God, of children of God. Those who are peacemakers find themselves in a good place. They will flourish, for they will be seen as God's children. Last, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Performing the commands of God will always open you up to persecution. Declaring what is true to those who have always held to falsehood. Pursuing love to those who love to hate. Even in acts of mercy, persecution can break out. Persecution, as Jesus will go on to explain, which is not just physical persecution, but it is lies, it is slander, it is libel against you. No one in this world wants to be reminded of their lack and their want, and so pointing that out is going to be met with hostility. It should be noted that this good place in persecution only comes for people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It doesn't necessarily mean that their persecution is deserved, but that they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Many people will feel like they're being persecuted and oppressed in our country for things that just have absolutely nothing to do with righteousness. When you do what's wrong and you suffer consequences, them's the breaks. This is for those who only do what is right and do what is good in the eyes of God and still suffer wrong. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 3. And notice how Peter uses this very blessing, this very beatitude of Jesus to convey the idea of joy and happiness. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Same word that's used there. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is, when you are, when you are persecuted for, for righteousness' sake, there ought to be evident a hope in you, a joy, a quality about you that they don't understand, that they are questioning. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, that if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You are in a better place, according to Peter. But we would say that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are in a good place. They will flourish, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Contentment and fulfillment and joy are elusive, sometimes difficult, and they can slip through your fingers very quickly. They're not as hard to find as the world makes it seem. These things are not the possession of the 1% of those who are born fortunate or lucky. They're not even the possession of those who work hard or some sort of special group of beautiful people. These very blessings, these happy states are available to everyone and indeed are sometimes more available to those who don't have any access to what the world considers joy and happiness. David Myers was a sociologist. He once wrote of the American paradox. Here, this is summed up by David Wells. Wells writes, Many therapists are now finding that this paradox has worked itself into the lives who come to see them. Among those are many who are younger. They often report that though they grew up in good homes, had all they wanted, went on to college, entered the workplace, they are nevertheless baffled by the emptiness they feel. Their self-esteem is high, but their self is empty. They grew up being told they could be anything they wanted to be, but they don't know what they want to be. They are unhappy, but there seems to be no cause for their unhappiness. He summarizes this paradox this way. Never have we had so much. Never have we had so little. For those people living in this paradox, they would understand that their lives seem empty, seem worthless, seem pointless. There's little contentment, little peace, little happiness, little joy. And they would hear the words of Jesus and they would say, that's ridiculous because we know what Osteen's offering us. We understand what the world offers us. And although they are free to live in that paradox, what they see Jesus saying here is even further strange. But nevertheless, it is that very paradox that Jesus seeks to write. Joyful, peaceful contentment. The knowledge that all is well and that all will be well. A sigh of good rest and relief is not found in the stuff of the world. It's not found in arrogance and carpe diem. It's not in possessions and in glittering trinkets. It's not in a smile and in self-importance. But can be found in the absence of everything that the world calls good. For those who have that very lack find that they can do little more than trust in a God who gives for a living. Those who are most fit for the good life on earth are those who seek a better life elsewhere. Happy and blessed, fortunate and flourishing are these, for God will give them the desires of their hearts. Let's pray. 
We confess, Father, it is hard to see true goodness in all that you do in the world. Perhaps we cannot. Perhaps our, our suffering will blind us, the hardships and the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations will blind us, but we can trust your word and trust that everything that you do, everything that crosses our path is for our good. We trust that you will hold nothing back from us, that your care and compassion, your mercy and your grace, they are always working, always affecting what is best for us in any situation. May all trouble tighten our grip on your promises. And may those very promises bring the hope that secures for us a good life, even in the midst of ruin and trial. We ask this most especially for our good and indeed for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our glorious and risen Lord, we pray these things. Amen.